Welcome back to the Dealmakers Podcast Show with serial entrepreneur Alejandro Cremades, best-selling author of The Art of Startup Fundraising and co-founder at Panthera Advisors. In this podcast, we ask our guests about their successful acquisitions and financing rounds. This episode is brought to you by Gilt. So when it comes to building wealth, taxes are such a big part of the strategy. And even if you're already filed, being proactive about this year to lower your future liability is so important. Gelt actually provides a proactive approach to tax strategy, combining innovative technology and expert CPAs by creating personalized tax strategies for your unique financial needs of multiple revenue streams, M&As, restricted stocks, various investments and more. You can keep your hard-earned money. Our, their proprietary platform ultimately gives you the full transparency of your tax management and direct communication with your CPA to reach your financial goals and grow for your wealth faster. So again, you know, if you're interested in this, go to joingelt.com. Uh, and they are actually on the show notes that I'm going to be posting a very special offer for you all that you can actually enjoy. So again, you know, join guilt. All righty. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Dealmaker Show. So today we have a very exciting founder, a founder that has done it multiple times, so many times that I lost track record. Unbelievable. But uh, we're going to be learning quite a bit. You know, it's incredible, you know, building, scaling, financing, all the above. You know, that's what this founder has done. So without further ado, let's welcome our guest today, Troy Helming. Welcome to the show. Alejandro, thank you so much for having me. So born in Denver, Colorado, but you traveled quite a bit. You ended up, you know, finding yourself in Kansas City. So give us a little of a, of a walk through memory lane. How was life growing up? <laughs> yeah, Kansas City was a, a great town, um, great barbecue, lots of fountains, um, but fairly, um, fairly conservative. And my family roots are from California, but my folks moved me there when I was uh, five years old. And my dad was in the agriculture industry. And obviously, you know, seeing your family being entrepreneurs themselves, I'm sure that, uh, you know, that, that, that taught you, you know, that, that gave you exposure to the ups, the downs and, and all of that good stuff. So, so how was it like for you to experience that, you know, at least indirectly? Yeah, well, growing up, I was really shy and introverted. And my dad uh, had a, a radio show called The Helming Report for 30 years over most of the country. And he was a, a speaker. And, and so it kind of, taught me, almost forced me to learn how to, how to, you know, get comfortable with public speaking, which was a big fear of mine growing up and, uh, and also watching his challenges, you know, the ups and downs of his business and the, the struggle, frankly, that, that my mom had, you know, with that, you know, because the, the security that, that, that was there for, uh, near the end for quite a while, but, um, it was tough in the beginning. So you have to have a stomach to be an entrepreneur. I, I know your listeners know that. <laughs> and nothing, nothing like being able to find, you know, the gaps, because in your case, you know, you ended up uh, working at AT&T. Uh, and right after that, you know, like you ended up starting your first business, you know, after a few years of working at AT&T, where you became a distributor of equipment, you know, for them. But I guess at what point do you realize, hey, I think I'm ready, you know, I mean, kind of like it's strange that having that entrepreneurial bug, you know, having that in your family, you went and worked for another company. A huge company, yeah, AT&T. Um, but I kind of figured that it, and I got this advice from my dad. He also, I was going to college as an engineer. He's like, get a business degree. You can hire engineers. So I did, and I did. 
but um, it, it helped me uh, learn what I was good at and what I was not good at working at a big corporation. And more importantly, it helped me build up a nest egg. And that's, I think, one of my earliest lessons is, and again, I get uh, credit to, to my uncles and my dad, but, uh, you know, build up savings before you start your own company. So I did, and that, that allowed me to make better strategic decisions rather than short-term only thinking. So in this case, you ended up becoming a distributor, and you did that yeah. for a while until you find yourself, you know, reading a newspaper one day. Exactly. In 1998, after doing really well at AT&T, and, and oh, by the way, another reason I left AT&T is they rewarded me for breaking all these sales records by shrinking my territory, you know, so I had to do just as well with fewer potential customers. So I was like, no, that's not the right way to do things. So I left and competed with them. But anyway, uh, yeah, I read an article in 1998 that said three states, Kansas, Texas, and North Dakota had enough wind energy potential to power the whole country. I was like, wow, we should be doing that. So I had no idea what I was doing, although I grew up in a, in a home that was a solar-powered home, solar-heated home. Uh, so I had an exposure to clean energy since I was a kid in the 1980s. But uh, yeah, I sold, sold my distributorship, um, started a, a wind company, promptly made some mistakes, but surrounded myself with smart people that knew better than I did how to do it and some partnerships. Uh, and yeah, we uh, ended up becoming, um, by 2017, Tradewind Energy became the largest wind development company in the United States. And how are you guys uh, making money? How does like a, like a company, you know, like this, you know, make money? I mean, what was the business model there? So it was a developer, kind of like a real estate developer. We would develop solar, in, excuse me, in this case, wind projects. And uh, that means when I say develop, that means get the permits, get the land tied up, leases and so forth, or buy it, almost always leases. Uh, get interconnection agreements with utilities to connect to the grid and then get a customer that wants to buy the power. Uh, once you have all those things lined up, then you can uh, sell the project to somebody and they'll pay you what's called a developer fee. And so we sold our projects to Enel, um, and uh, I, I sold most of my shares in 2004. But I was the you know CEO and founder, and under my watch, a uh, number of projects were uh, were developed. And in fact, uh, right now those assets today are worth 35 billion. Is that right? That's right. Yeah, it's um, the assets that were acquired over the years by um, Enel, and the team that I hired to replace myself uh, stayed there until fairly recently. And that's right. Solar and wind assets that were built and or under development are worth uh, $35 billion. So I guess I started a company that became a, a DECA unicorn. So what was your lesson, you know, to be learned from uh, from that company? Because, uh, you know, that I'm sure that there is a lot of things that you learned along the way. There are, um, you know, grit, uh, again, making the right decisions to stay stay focused um, and and make strategic decisions. But bringing in a partner. We formed a joint venture with Padoma Wind Power, which out of San Diego, and they knew the business way better than us. And we're like, okay, you know, we're coming out of nowhere. Let's let's get somebody with a track record and share the upside with them on the first two two or three projects. So that was a lesson. And then another lesson is um, to is 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 to not sell out too early. I really wanted to own the projects, which is why I sold most of my shares in two thousand four. Uh, I should have held on to a little more of the equity. I was too eager to, you know, to, to just get out. I should have been a little more patient. So obviously, after this success, you know, anyone would get cocky. Eh? And uh, you went and you started Crystal Energy. And when you did Crystal Energy, you know, I guess that uh, there what happened is that 
you kind of like get a got a little bit of head of ahead of the game, and uh, and 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 basically, you know, like you guys ended up achieving an outcome that it was not the one desired. So as they say, you either succeed or you learn. I'm sure that the lessons that you learned here were even bigger than the ones that you learned on the previous uh, company because typically when you succeed, it's not you don't really learn much. So I guess how was that? Uh, experience from you going from such a smashing, you know, blockbuster, you know, success to all of a sudden you, you find yourself picking up the pieces. Yeah. Crystal energy is my, my failure, my one uh, company that, that I failed uh, all the others I've had exits, but, um, a lot of lessons, but the main one is to stay focused. The wolf that chases two rabbits goes hungry. And at crystal energy, we were selling, uh, basically, uh, energy efficiency and renewable energy products and services to you know consumers and small businesses, and we tried to please everybody. We were trying to do too much, and we got just spread out way too thin. And capex and opex got too high, and we were trying to do it, and the margins were too thin. So we eventually just had to shut the company down. So, yeah, focus is really the the primary key. And you're right. I felt like I you know everything I touched turned to gold. I thought you know oh I can do this. But no, I couldn't. And at what point do you realize, hey, we got to pull the plug? I mean, how does that, um, because I mean, that's a really tough decision. And I'm sure that, uh, you know, those were really dark days for you. It was, yeah, it, it was It was very tough. I mean, there was regulatory scrutiny. There were financial challenges. There were all kinds of things. And at some point we realized, you know, hey, without um, I was going without salary. My wife was too. She was a co-founder with me and, and uh, financially it was hard on us. And eventually we realized either the company has to fold or we have to you know, put a bunch more money in either from ourselves or raising money. And I didn't feel right trying to go out and raise money for uh, a business plan that I, at that point, had finally admitted was not a good business plan. So obviously the company folds and the incredible lessons that you take with you. What happened next? Yeah. So um, I started a, a little biodiesel. I had a, um, a a diesel vehicle. So I started a little biodiesel experimentation in my garage while I was doing some consulting, trying to figure out what to do. And uh, I made too much of it. So I, I sold a few 55 gallon drums to a local construction company for their off-road uh, Caterpillar equipment, and they were like, "Oh, we love this stuff. It has great lubricity." And anyway, so I designed and built a 10 million gallon per year biodiesel plant um, in Kansas City, and we were on a rail spur, had rail cars and vacuum trucks to collect cooking oil from restaurants and hotels and casinos, and we bought chicken fat and beef fat from agricultural rendering facilities. And um, anyway, built built up a little nice little biodiesel plant business. Now, one thing here that is interesting, too, is that uh, you did it in parallel with another one, and that was with uh, Pristine. And uh, ultimately, you know, like with, uh, with Pristine, you know, Pristine Sun, you know, what you, what you realize is that the passion was really not there, you know, with KC Biofuels. And, uh, and eventually, you know, you decide that it's time to, you know, uh, exit, you know, that company and to fully focus on Pristine Sun. So what what happened there with the passion? Well, growing up around a solar system in the 1980s, I always loved solar, but the economics were challenging for a long time. At, even at Crystal Energy, we, we did a few little solar projects, and some of the clients that we had met uh, there um, continued to work with me. And so I was still doing, doing solar projects in 
the Midwest and California, but you know, living living in Kansas City, and I realized, gosh, California is the land of opportunity for solar. They they passed uh, some legislation that basically created a multi-billion-dollar industry with you know feed-in tariffs and 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 subsidies and credits and so forth. I was like, you know what? We need to relocate to California and ride the solar wave or the solar coaster that we that we call it now. And so I, yeah, I sold my, um, and that, that was my passion. You're right. You know, that drew me. And so we sold the, the biodiesel plant, um, you know, made not, not a lot of money, high six figures on that exit, but enough to invest more into the solar company, relocate the family, um, to, to move to California and pursue, pursue the solar dream. Now, with Pristine Sun, you know, the way that it works is a, is pretty unique. I mean, because for the company now, you guys have raised for those projects $250 million. So how does it work, you know, when you have like the money that you raise for projects versus the money that you raise for the corporation itself? Right. So project capital is what's called project finance, where you get a contract from, say, a utility or a data center or tech company or something where they say, yeah, we want to buy the output of the solar farm over a 15 or 20 or 30 year period or something like that. And you take that contract from a credit worthy customer and you put the development time and effort and money in as the company, you earn a, a developer fee and then you raise outside capital. Uh, and in our case, we raised 250 million from a private equity fund. We will co-own the projects together. So uh, unlike at Tradewind Energy, we were able to own these projects and still do. Christine Sun still owns a minority share of a bunch of solar farms that are operating. Um, anyway, but then you go get a construction loan at really cheap financing, you know, like four or five percent interest based on that 20 year contract. Hey, guys, this episode is brought to you by .tech Domains. I mean, I can tell you one thing, and that is that as a founder, you're always thinking about branding. Now, one thing that is very important in that, you know, is that you need traction. You need to grow. You need to succeed. And having a name that is recognizable on a really amazing domain is the way to go. So that is why it's very important to establish the online presence with a clear and distinguishable identity. And you can do that with .dot tech domains. So .tech domains are the go-to namespace to build anything in tech. They have actually helped many brands in the industry to make a name for themselves, just like onex.tech with their advanced Androids designed to replicate human movements and behaviors. So really, really, really cool stuff and cutting edge. And again, thousands of companies like this, you know, are also taking advantage of .tech domains. So uh, also remember that .tech domains can do the same, you know, for your company. They're also providing a great offer to every single one of you in the DealMakers audience. Is one-year domain for $10 and a five-year domain for $50. So head now to the special URL, which is go.tech slash DealMakers. And that is, again, go.tech forward slash DealMakers. So go get your own domain. So I guess, uh, you know, in this case, one thing led to the next and uh, eventually there is a joint venture that uh, ended up uh, not working out the way that you had hoped. So what 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 is what was this joint venture about and what happened there? Yeah, so that was uh, years ago before this this latest 250 million. So in 2000, let's see, 2015, we had grown the company. We we got a $10 million investment in 2011 from Capital Dynamics, a Swiss private equity fund. We spent the money wisely. 
Uh, two years later, in 2013, we had $100 million of assets on the balance sheet operating solar farms. We bought out Capital Dynamics, paid them their 25% return, uh, and uh, we basically owned all, all the company. And then we, were, we, we grew too fast. We had 80 employees, actually more than that, and uh, we had over $26 million of debt that we took on to get the projects to the point where we could start construction. Um, we didn't have any equity and we tried to raise equity and it was challenging at that time. And so we were about to be acquired um, by First Solar, um, a huge solar company. And then oil prices crashed, something we couldn't control. And I had no way of predicting this, but when oil prices crashed, the stock price of First Solar and many other publicly traded solar companies also crashed because for whatever reason, Wall Street thinks that oil has something to do with electricity. It doesn't, but anyway, affected their, their stock. So they fired their M&A team and our lender freaked out. So they said, you gotta raise equity and you have 90 days to do it. And so we're like, holy cow. Um, so we hired an investment bank, tried and tried, and everyone just wanted to buy our projects. No one wanted to invest in the company because our projects were so valuable. We're like, we wanna build a real business. We don't wanna just sell projects. So we entered into a joint venture um, that uh, was with a publicly traded company called Renasola, a Chinese solar man manufacturer. This is all public. Unfortunately, um, yeah, they paid us the 10 million at closing, um, but uh, didn't, they didn't honor the agreement. Uh, litigation, um, 18 months later, we finally settled, but 18 months of litigation tied up all of our best projects. So we had to fire almost everybody in the company and put everything on pause. It was a really dark time in my life. It was very challenging, um, but um, we came out of it okay. And, and now the company has rebounded and, and we have over $5 billion of, of solar farm projects in development. Uh, and we've been profitable every year, except for that one bad year. And dealing with litigation, I mean, that's a, a nightmare, you know, for entrepreneurs, because a, I mean, not only you're dealing with the uncertainty of building a company from the ground up, but now you have this, you know, nonsense of, of people that are, that are, you know, just trying to, to put you out of business. So how do you deal with, with that, you know, uncertainty too? Because I mean, that's like double, double the whammy, you know, when it comes to the uncertainty. So how, how do you deal with that? What, what have you learned about juggling, you know, uh, this type of uncertainties too? Yeah, so I've, I've been doing yoga for 30 years, um, but I had to do more yoga, more time in nature, a lot of meditation to deal with just the emotional uh, and mental toll that litigation takes because it's like hurry up and wait, you know, and it, like I said, it took 18 months. Um, and then I started working out again. I kind of had a dad bod and um, my son saw the show American Ninja Warrior. We got hooked on that. I was like, oh, I could do that. I was a gymnast in college, been a rock climber off and on for years. Um, and so I essentially poured myself, I was doing some consulting to pay the bills because we had no employees at Pristine Sun anymore. And I had a little side project, EarthGrid. I'm sure we'll talk about that. But I spent a lot of time getting myself into amazing shape, you know, better shape than I was when I was a gymnast in college or, you know, a track athlete um, in high school. So um, I was invited to compete on the show American Ninja Warrior four times. And and it really helped me with not only my you know, physical energy, but also my mental clarity and my ability to sleep better and process things better and work out my frustration and my anger, and my rage about the litigation. You know, I was feeling like I was being taken advantage of and all these people's lives were affected. So I poured that, that frustration into working out. And that really was a great outlet for me. 
That's amazing. And obviously, you know, uh, now the company today, Pristine Sun, is, uh, is, is doing great. You know, you're there, the chairman, you know, of the, of the company. And then also, you know, uh, the valuation is, is, pretty, is pretty high, you know, we can say. Eh? Uh, they're in the unicorn status. So I guess in your case, you know, obviously you don't like to uh, stay put. So, um, you know, you kept the drive going, you know, that uh, entrepreneurial, you know, uh, eagerness, I would say. And, uh, and, and you ended up, you know, launching your latest baby, which is EarthGrid. So um, what is EarthGrid about? We uh, invented or I invented plasma tunnel boring robots or trenching robots that uh, essentially act like a lightsaber and it vaporizes or spallates or melts the rock. And it can go up to 100 times faster and up to 10 times cheaper than conventional mechanical trenching, drilling and boring technologies. Wow. And uh, what is the process there of making money? What is the what is the model? Yeah, so we have two products. You know, we call them Boom and Badass. Boom stands for uh, Build, Own, Operate, and Maintain. That's where we own the ditch or we own the tunnel and we lease out space or we charge a toll on all of the commodities flowing through our project. <clears throat> Badass stands for Boring and Drilling as a Simple Service. So if our customer wants to own uh, their own ditch or their own tunnel, we just charge them per meter. That's incredible. Now, in this case, you know, like for the people that are listening to, I mean, how do you go about time management? Because you have all these different, you know, things going on at the same time. You're a chairman of Pristine. You are now, you know, leading EarthGrid. How do you go about managing yourself when it comes to time, when it comes to like dealing with the crazy amount of emails that you're probably dealing with the operations on on, on all fronts? What does that look like? Yeah, I've become hyper uh, efficient with everything I do. You know, I constantly spend time, uh, well, I shouldn't say constantly, but every day I spend probably 10 or 15 minutes unsubscribing to emails and, and you know, delegating and, and, and trying to be as efficient as possible. I use uh, G Suite, Gmail, and, you know, I, I, I snooze things, I set reminders, I, I'm super efficient. But mm -hmm. time management in studying the lives of successful men and women throughout history, they all had one thing in common only one thing, and that's self-discipline. And so I'm very disciplined about um, being a father, being a husband. My dad was a, a workaholic. I hardly knew him growing up. Um, you know, good relationship with him now, but um, so I, I didn't want to do that. And so I, I set aside, I don't work on Sundays. I only work half a day on Saturdays. And I set aside time to do emails. I set aside time to be a husband, have date, with, date night every week with my wife. Uh, it'll be 20 years married next year. So, you know, these are these are the things that are important, at least for me and work for me to, to have balance in my life. Uh, and then I'm also disciplined about with respect to where I sit on boards like Christine Sun and I sit on a few other boards or a couple other. And and I, I only spend time on that uh, on certain days. You know, I, I set aside 30 or 45 minutes uh, to, to focus on that. And so I don't I don't look at the emails or, or anything for those companies until that designated time. So how are you able, for example, to, uh, because, you know, it's very difficult to, to control our mind, you know, and how it races, you know, and, and being able to perhaps, you know, switch it, like you were saying, like being a father, being a husband, going on date nights. How, how do you just grab whatever thought, whatever thinking with whatever you're, you're dealing with and just put it aside, you know, until, you know, you have the time that is allotted for, 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 for that topic? Yeah, that's a great question, because you're right. Thoughts pop into my head. Like, for instance, I, I was at a, a happy hour 
uh, with Christine Sun and my team in 2016 um, when the idea for EarthGrade came to me. Um, and because Dominic, one of our Dominic Lopez, one of our solar engineers, was bragging to his girlfriend about he's a former Navy SEAL, and he was bragging about how his SEAL team used to practice entering enemy ships underwater by cutting through the side of the ship with a plasma cutting torch. It's like 20,000 degrees, take your arm off. We're like, dude, you're badass. Anyway, but then I popped up in the middle of the night and I was like, oh, wow, plasma, that could go underground, go through rock probably. It could stop thinking about it. Anyway, so when ideas come to you, and they, they do for all of us, right? So for me, what, what works for me is I will send an email. If I'm, if I'm in you know, solar mode, I'll send an email from my solar to the other company, my other email address, and I have you know separate G suites, separate browsers and tabs and everything in Chrome. Um, and so I send the email to remind myself, and then I can just let go. I let go of the thought after I sent the email um, because it's there and it's sitting in the inbox. So then when it comes time for me to look at, at emails for that particular company, I can process it, right? So anyway, that that's how I do it. Now, talking about ideas here, because basically EarthGrid, you know, went from just being a hobby to something meaningful. So uh, at what point do you kind of like realize, hey, I think that maybe I need to allocate more time to this? What does that look like when you're like validating and vetting, you know, hobbies that, you know, actually could transform into a business? Right. So I built the first prototype in 2017 after... You know, the idea, again, couldn't stop thinking about this using plasma to go through rocks to solve the, you know, the, the bad infrastructure in the United States and the problem with overhead power lines causing fires and killing people and, you know, going down in ice storms and tornadoes and hurricanes and everything. And not only does our power go out, but our Internet goes out because everything is above ground in the U.S., where in Europe, it's 80 percent underground. We are only 8 percent underground here in the U.S., so 10 times worse. Anyway, uh, so for me, it was, gosh, I got to hire a feasibility, uh, hire an engineering firm, did a feasibility study. They came back, said, yes, it'll work. Two, no one is doing this. Three, you can bore at speeds of one kilometer per day, which is crazy fast. And four, here's your operating costs. And I ran the math because I've built hundreds of tunnels and trenches over the years for solar and wind farms. I was like, this, this looks like it could be either a billion dollar company or a nothing company. I just don't know if it's going to work. And so I was like, all right, I'm willing to put some of my own net worth into building a prototype. And so I did that in 2017, started testing in 2018, didn't even tell my wife, didn't hardly tell anybody. There was a small team of engineers that I, I identified and, and we built a little prototype and it punched a hole through a big boulder of granite. I was like, yeah, it worked. Awesome. And so um, anyway... That's when I realized, hey, we have something here. Started filing patents, and and then realized this this could be a, a, a heck of a company. That's amazing. So, um, so what does it look like when you end up turning a corner here? You know, what was that moment where you know you're like, wow, I think that uh, that we're into something big here. When I started talking to potential customers and realized the demand was very high and I didn't I didn't believe our cost structure because it was so much cheaper, like, you know, 80, 70, 80, 90 percent cheaper. I was like, that can't be right. Uh, but as we did more and more testing, I realized it was. So uh, I was an early employee of, of um, Petra, used to be known as Arcbit, um, sold my first patent to them. And, and um, uh, EarthGrid, though, though, was formed in 2016. At the time, I was still running my solar company, and we were just coming out of the, the litigation and rebuilding the company, and it was very emotionally draining. I didn't have the stomach 
to to be the CEO again of of, of two companies at once, uh, while I was still cleaning up the you know the very emotionally draining mess there at Pristine Sun. Without going into any you know too much detail there, um, Earthgrid uh, sold its first patent to Petra. Now um, Earthgrid has its own patents, uh, separate companies. Petra is not doing plasma; they're using a different process, and I wish them the best. But to answer your question, it was it was when I knew the tech worked. And I knew the demand was there, and I knew that the economics were there. The margins, even worst case scenario, I felt like the margins would be fifty to fifty to eighty percent, or maybe above a hundred percent. And so I was like, "All right, we have a we have a business here. We got to invest in this and raise raise some outside capital." So let's say, and 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 in terms of raising capital, I mean, how much capital have you guys raised to date for the business? Twenty five, little over twenty five million of uh, of equity plus some debt capital. Um, and on top of that, we have a crowdfunding campaign on on net capital that's uh, uh, going well because I want to democratize the ownership of utilities and infrastructure. Uh, so we're making it available. People can invest as little as $100 on, on the crowdfunding platform. Nice. So obviously, you know, when it comes to investments, you know, it's a, it has to do with vision. We're selling the vision too, no? And getting people aligned with that. So I guess, imagine if you were to go to sleep tonight, Troy, and you wake up in a world where the vision of Earthgrid is fully realized. What does that world look like? That world looks like we've built an underground supergrid across North America, and then we've started to connect the continents by putting our tunnels underneath, say, the Atlantic Ocean from northern Canada to the short hop over to Greenland, another short hop to Iceland, to the Faroe Islands, into the UK, and then mainland Europe, and then eventually connecting to the Middle East, North Africa, Asia, Australia, South America, you name it. Um, that's what I uh, see us doing. And in fact, we signed a binding MOU from a large institutional investor last month uh, that's going to invest, and this is going to sound crazy it, it, coming out of my mouth, uh, $27 billion of commitment in a joint venture. Uh, and I have my eyes wide open this time. It's going to be a good joint venture. We're taking our time to make sure we have really good lawyers negotiating it. Um, but uh, but yeah, we're, that's going going to fund 100% of the construction cost of 24,000 kilometers of underground tunnels and trenches across North America. My God, that sounds wild. So um, imagine, you know, let's talk about the past now. Imagine I put you into a time machine and I bring you back in time to that moment where you were working at AT&T and figuring out, hey, I, I want to do something on my own. No, Let's say you were able to have a chat, you know, sit down, you're younger self, that younger Troy, and have the opportunity of giving that younger Troy one piece of advice before launching a company. What would that be and why, given what you know now? Well, that younger Troy was kind of a cocky, arrogant son of a bitch, to be honest with you. Um, you know, I, I did really well in, in college at AT&T. In college, I was the captain of my yell leading squad, and we won the national championship on ESPN. I was uh, All-American. And anyway, so I would tell myself to, you know, uh, that, hey, look, you're going to get your nose bloodied. You're going to make a number of mistakes. So you need to be more patient and you need to recognize your limitations and not just assume that you can make anything work. You need to be more, more patient and more careful about the decisions you make and the business risks that you take. Nice. Now, for the people that are listening, Troy, that would love to reach out and say hi. What is the best way for them to do so? My uh, handle on social media is Solar Ninja Troy. So on 
Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, um, LinkedIn, and so forth. Feel free to connect with me on LinkedIn, or you can send me uh, an email to troy at earthgrid.io for input-output. Amazing. Well, hey, easy enough. Well, Troy, thank you so much for being on the Dealmaker Show today. It has been an honor to have you with us. Thank you so much for having me, Alejandro. If you like the show, make sure that you hit that subscribe button. If you could leave a review as well, that would be fantastic. And if you got any value, either from this episode or from the show itself, share it with a friend. Perhaps they also appreciate it. So also remember that if you need any help, whether it is with your fundraising efforts or with selling your business, you can reach me at alejandro at pantheraadvisors.com. You've reached the end of another episode of the Dealmakers podcast. For free resources and materials, head over to alejandrocremades.com. Thank you for listening and see you at the next episode.